It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood. A beautiful day for a neighbor. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood. A beautiful day for a neighbor. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood. A beautiful day. Please won't you be my neighbor? Well, I want to let you know that I am not Mr. Rogers. As you wondered, my name is Chris Nichols. I'm the brand new executive director of ministry. I'm so glad to be here today. I also want to let you know that it is a University College uh, Colors today. I am not a graduate of UW. But here's the thing. I've gone to so many colleges, it was hard to choose where to get gear from. So I thought I would identify with our closest neighbor. So uh, go Huskies. I, um, yeah, I'm totally trying to work you guys. Yeah. Ellen, I want to thank you for your great welcome to us here in Seattle and to UPC. We are thoroughly enjoying being here in Seattle with its many advantages. For instance, Seattle streets are laid out on a grid, so if you miss your turn, you can go around the block and find your way again, which is not true in New England, which is laid out on a 17th century pattern of streets that if you miss your turn and then turn right after you miss it, you go into neighborhood oblivion and may never come out again. I'm also enjoying the fact, personally, that Seattle is filled with what seems to me endless coffee and an endless variety of coffee, which I thoroughly enjoy. We love the restaurants and the scenery is amazing. Oh yeah, and the work is incredible. Ellen is the Dean of Arts and Humanities at Bellevue College, me here. We're having a great time and not finding life boring at all. Here at UPC, we're working to move forward in our mission to join Jesus in transforming our lives and the lives of our neighbors at University of Washington, in Seattle, and around the world. And last week, Pastor George helped us think about what it means to gather a circle of friends in Jesus' name so that he could be seen through our community together. He taught us in 1 Corinthians that we can't say to one another, I have no need of you. That in fact, our spiritual and physical health was dependent on our relationships with one another and that our community of love in Jesus was necessary for those outside of our community in our neighborhoods to see Jesus himself. And we're calling that strategy for missional communities. And today we're going to examine that circle of friends again by focusing on the person who's the center of the circle, and that's the person of Jesus. So we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 18, verses 19 to 20. You can find that passage on page 799 in the black book in your pew rack in front of you. It's in the lower right-hand corner. It starts down there. We're going to stand and read together. And I'm going to say, after we read, this is the word of the Lord. And if you believe it, or on your way to believing it, you can respond with, thanks be to God. Please stand. And read with me. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. There's perhaps no verse in the New Testament that has more potential to create skepticism and cynicism than verse 19 of this chapter. If two of you on earth agree about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. At first glance, it sounds like winning the lottery, a free pass to getting what we want. Like the day when my daughter-in-law announced on my last day to do childcare with my grandson before they moved to DC, that it was no rules Monday, that my job was to say yes. You can imagine what the day was like. The aquarium and ice cream, the park 
and cookies, TV and movies. His parents weren't as appreciative at the end of the day as I was, but we had an amazing time. <laughs> is that what this is? A kind of rules-free access to a heavenly ATM? All I have to do is to convince someone to go along? If two of, of us agree on something, we just bring God in like our angel investor, and he fulfills our wishes, no matter how selfish and self-indulgent or willful. I can get the car I want, the job I want, the money I want, the life partner I want, the power I want. Now, most of us know in reality that's not true. We know it because actually we've tried it and it didn't work out. The promise that can't be made by Jesus in order just to lavish gifts on us, though, it can't be that he's giving us a promise just to help increase our selfishness. There must be something more. Jesus is not a genie in a lamp. But if we're not appealing to heaven so we can fill our requests for our own comfort, our own power, what does it mean when he gives us the promise? And what happens when we come together and agree on what we want and it doesn't happen? Or would you believe that prayer is like playing the slots in Vegas? You pull the lever and see if you win, but you know the house is betting against you, so you're going to lose more often than not? If we're not careful, even if we are careful, we individually and corporately can get to a place where we stop asking because we think it won't make any difference. Or, because we don't want to be cynical about God, we make sure our requests are benign. We pray for things we don't actually care if they're answered or not. Or, we pray so generally that we couldn't tell if our prayers were answered or not. Or, we grow distant, doubting that God is even there, and or if he is, he doesn't care, and perhaps he doesn't know I exist, and perhaps it's not even powerful enough to do anything about it anyway. The question that hovers around us when we get to this place is, where are you, Jesus, and why don't you answer? Those are important questions. But I want to suggest that there's a question that's more important, a question that will only, will only give us answers to the questions about where he is. Rather than where are you, Jesus, we need to start with who are you, Jesus, the answer to this question is the beginning of the answer to all others. It's the question the disciples asked from their early days with Jesus. Followers and observers of Jesus raised questions about his identity from the very beginning. As he healed people and cast out demons and forgave sin, provided food for thousands, calmed storms, walked on water, raised the dead, predicted his death, asserted that he would rise from the dead, over and over again they spent three years with him, night and day, and wrestled the whole time with who, he's, who he was and what he'd come to do. They could see he had authority. They could see he could teach with wisdom and passion. They knew he had power. He confronted hypocrisy in religious leaders. He refused to be in the gulf in the culture around him. He sounded like a revolutionary. He claimed to be the pathway of God. He said he was the Messiah. And we see in the Gospels each day that they would try and make sense of what they were seeing and hearing. And each day they wrestled with what they wanted him to be. And each day Jesus kept shaping and reshaping their expectations, giving them new insights into his identity, his purpose, and his power. Each week he showed them his priorities and his character and his authority. And as they pieced together their understanding of him, they still couldn't see who he was. So then in Matthew 17, the chapter just before the chapter we read in, they get a glimpse of Jesus as he is. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, three of his 12 disciples up the mountain, and as they go up together, Jesus begins to change. His face begins to shine. 
His robes turn a dazzling white. Elijah the prophet and Moses the lawgiver appear. And God's voice comes from a dazzling cloud proclaiming who Jesus is, that they should listen to him. And each of these signs are meant to identify Jesus. Here's the history of Israel and God come together. God the king come to earth where God's temple once, God's glory once filled the temple, it's now filling Jesus. The disciples would have recognized the signs from Exodus 24 where Moses goes up to meet God and receives the law and he goes back, his face shining and God speaks to him in a cloud. Or from Daniel 9 where the Son of Man, A1 like a Son of Man, comes in a cloud and God's glory surrounds him and he's proclaimed as the one who's going to have dominion over all things forever and ever. And in this moment on this mountain, the Son of Man is revealed as Jesus. And the disciples were understandably terrified, and I have to think terrified not just by the supernatural events that were going on in front of them, but, but because it was Jesus. Here's their teacher, their rabbi, their healer, their revolutionary, their leader, now something far more when they, than they expected or understood. And they did get a glimpse of him in his true transcendent form. He's still the Jesus they traveled with, ate with, laughed with, served with, but now they see he's far greater. He's like them but he's not like them. The transfiguration is a momentary event, but it would set the stage for the day when death couldn't hold him. When he defeated that curse that was the mark of sin on all humankind, it was a glimpse of the day when he would rise from the dead, transform their understanding of life itself. This Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of Man, Emmanuel, God with him. And if we could see him as he is, like the disciples, we'd fall down in terror too. We'd fall at his feet in wonder and awe and worship him. That will be our experience one day. But now, in this place, like the disciples, we, are, we need to keep letting him give us glimpses of who he really is, to keep letting him teach us about his identity, to let him expand our understanding through his word, through the experience of obedience to him, through his Holy Spirit, who he is. For the danger of, uh, for us in following Jesus it's not that we wrestle with our understanding of him, but that we stop wrestling. When we become satisfied with who Jesus is, then we're in trouble. When we become comfortable with our image of him and comfortable with our understanding of him, then we're in danger of building an idol. When we diminish him in size and authority, when we make him in our own image, then his death becomes a confused tragedy and his resurrection impossible. Instead of Emmanuel, God with us, he becomes Jesus, our house God of easy convenience. When we make him more like us, he becomes less and less interesting or important or significant or powerful and more and more a figment of our imagination. The more we form him in our image, we move farther and farther away from his presence and are left with an idol of our own making, an idol, the psalmist says, that has a mouth and can't speak eyes that can't see, ears that can't hear, nose that can't smell, hands that can't feel, feet that can't walk. And our interactions with this false God prove our point. We pray, but we get no response. We seek, but we can't find him. He seems irrelevant to daily life, and so he becomes a religious icon that can and should be ignored by the world around us. Dorothy Sayers, writing in the 20th century, put it this way. The people who hanged Christ, never to do them justice, accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. 
It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommend him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. But that is not the Jesus revealed in Scripture, in history. And when we allow Jesus to define himself in the Scriptures and teach and touch us through the presence of the Holy Spirit, continuous retooling our understanding of him, expanding our vision, enlarging our picture of him, then he becomes the lion that he is, and the verses in Matthew begin to make sense. We get a perspective on the world that's more about what he wants and not about what we want. If he's indeed the Lord of the universe, the Lord of creation, then it makes sense to give way to him, that he knows more about how I should live than I should live, I do, more about what my life should look like than I do. And that's what we've been hearing about all year. Men and women who gave away to God in order that his will be done and a greater good could result. Zacchaeus in Luke 19, giving away his lifestyle to live in response to his encounter with Jesus. The church at Ephesus, learning how to live in community with Jesus at the center, changing the way they resolve conflicts, gaining unity, learning to love God and one another, living in the world fully clothed in God's armor. The women of faith that we heard about in Advent, Rahab and Ruth and Mary. The people of Israel in captivity in Babylon, learning from God that they're to live in response to him, put down deep roots, live as people in exile, his people. Or how are we to be a Jesus-shaped, Jesus-formed community, living among our neighbors? Or the Apostle Paul, who prayed that he might go to Rome, so God sent him in chains, so he could have influence to the very courts of Caesar. All these lives reshaped, redirected, reformed because of God's presence, Jesus' presence with them, around them. He filled them, their vision with images of himself. He filled their lives with the Holy Spirit. He transformed their futures by reorienting their values and redirecting their choices. That's the Jesus who moved Ellen and I 3,500 miles to come here. A new place, a new chapter, a new challenge, a new adventure, a new community, a new opportunity to trust him. So when we allow God to open our eyes to him, to gain glimpses of Jesus as he is, that we realize that he's calling us to move from me to him to we, empowering us to give our lives away. When we're touched by him, we're able to recognize the Lord Jesus will not be contained by us, but rather we're contained by him. He is not shaped by us, but we are shaped by him. And we move, when we move from asking, where are you, Jesus, to who you are, who are you, it changes everything about our relationship to him. And these verses in Matthew 18 begin to make sense. And so three things happen when Jesus enters our circle. And the first is this. He reminds us, he reassures us that he's here in our midst. Jesus is present in the sanctuary today, whether you believe it or not. He's told him when he gathered, he would be here. And he's not sitting quietly at the end of the pew waiting to run out before the last song is done. He's loose among us, around us, behind us, before us, beneath us, eager to help us catch a glimpse of him, eager to trap us into an encounter with him. You and I are to be like Peter on the shores of Galilee after Jesus' resurrection when they couldn't find his body and they didn't know what else to do, so they went fishing. 
And as they were fishing, they were catching no fish. And a figure on the shore called to them and said, put your nets on the other side. And Peter looked and said, it is the Lord. That's what we do in worship. We come and we expect to brush up against the kingdom of God. And as we do that, we're meant to call out to one another about our experience. We're meant to encourage each other, the body, helping each other engage with the Lord who's here. When I come to worship, defeated by life and numb to God, but you're brimming with the joy of his presence, aware of his love, confidence in his goodness, you're meant to point him out to me as you experience him, to encourage me. When I recognize his authority in worship in his word, in music, and in the prayers, I'm to signal to you that he's here. Be encouraged. When I've been wounded by the brokenness of this world and are exhausted by my grief and pain, I'm to come into this place of worship and be helped by those who know he is able to sustain us even in our greatest pain, even when recovery feels hopeless. And to those of you who feel like outsiders, who feel like you're watching something happen in front of you you don't understand, it's the job of those of us who believe to help you find a way in to know this one who's alive and present and call him by name so you can enter into the experience we know is true, into a way of forgiveness and healing and hope. It's why we lift our hands in worship, why we stand, why we shout amens, why we sing. We're essentially shouting hallelujahs to one another, when we come, he is alive. My faith to encourage your faith, your joy to touch my despair, my salvation reminding me of yours, my hope building your hope. Everything we do in worship is meant to give us space to experience him, to think on him, to learn of him, to give way to him. And that reality, his presence here changes everything. And we realize, we recognize that we are not alone. God is available to us. When we gather in neighborhoods, we seek to gather others in that neighborhood so they might believe with us. And what's our message to them? Be reconciled to God so that you can know his great presence and revel in your lo his love for you. Secondly, in our circle of friends, Jesus is the primary member. We are not a gathering of equals. His presence changes everything. It did for the disciples. Their lives in his resurrected presence transformed their view of themselves, others, and the world. It reoriented them and completely changed how they lived their lives. Jesus' purposes became theirs. His values became theirs. His view of the world became theirs. Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So they did. Jesus told them to give up their lives and follow him. And so they did. Jesus told them to go into all the world and make disciples. And so they did. Jesus was their primary relationship, and so they learned to say yes to him first and work out the details later. My wife is a frightening example of this for me. When we first contemplated coming here almost a year ago, it was first suggested, my wife's comment was, well, if that's the Lord's, what the Lord wants, of course we say yes. And my response says, yes, but... Yes, but our house. Yes, but our children. Yes, but our money. Yes, but how would we get there? Yes, but where is that place? <laughs> but what we've learned over time is when we say yes to him, then glory follows, joy follows, change follows, adventure follows. Because we experience him in a new way, aren't changed by him in a new place. Almost three years ago, when I'd left over three decades of work on campus, 
and we weren't sure what our next step was, Ellen and I gathered a community of people from our church to pray with us. And one evening in prayer, one man in the room had a vision for us. And he told us the vision he had was this, that God was taking down the house he'd built for us stone by stone and laying a path for the future that we couldn't see but that he was laying for us. I've often thought about that vision and wondering what it would have been like if I decided I wanted to stay in that house, that that house is the best house for me. It was familiar and I loved its place and that every time he removed a stone of faith, I replaced it with one of my own built, a crude example, a crude replica of what he was doing until I lived in a wreck of my own making. The promise that he, we heard that night was that we would see Jesus, his hands, as he laid stone by stone for us each day, a day at a time, into a future that we couldn't see, that he was holding for us in hope. When we commit to following Jesus and invite him into our circle of friends to love and serve our neighbors, we're not inviting him in for some religious advice or seeing him as our curriculum focus or as our ATM. He is the Lord of the earth. And that, if that makes you nervous, it should. He sets the agenda. We all find that frustrating because we would like Jesus to make us comfortable with what he's asking us to do. But the reality is, is that while Jesus is our comfort, his intention is not to make us comfortable. It is a fearsome and awesome thing to fall in the hands of the living God. C.S. Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which I know lots of you know, describes to the children the kingdom of Narnia who's in charge, and he talks about Aslan, who is a lion. And the children cry out, but is he safe? And the character responds, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He is the king. In his presence, we're changed Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we behold his presence with unveiled face and we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. It's why Paul can write with joy and confidence in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the one who loves me and gave himself for me. And as we continue to focus on him, we give him access to our hearts and minds. And he changes how we understand our purpose and our goals. He touches the wounded areas of our life to bring healing and empowers the potential of our lives that our gifts might shine. Finally then, in his presence, our asks begin to change. With him in front of us, we're no longer asking about what we want, but what he wants. He helps us stop being so self-involved and be involved with him. We seek him not for our own sake, for the sake of his kingdom work. And we turn to those we are gathered with, and in his presence we agree to Jesus' priorities, and we make our requests to God. And that's as we, what he requires when it seems impossible. We turn to him for the help we need, and he answers. If anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For the one who saves their life will lose it. But the one who loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. How is that even possible? How am I supposed to do that? And we gather with another and say, yes, Lord. In his name, he will do it. 
Forgive your enemies seven times seven. Love your enemies. Praise for those who persecute you. How is that possible? How can I possibly do that? And when we gather with a number and ask him to help us, in his name, he will do it. Don't worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear. Seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added to you. How is that possible, Jesus, in this economy? How is it possible for me to trust you in that way? How is it possible to have that kind of peace? By gathering with another and asking in his name that it be done. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Impossible? Ask whatever you will, it will be done for you. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. How? With others in our circle, we ask him, and it will be done for us. Jesus is Lord and Savior at the center of our circle. He sets the direction. He transforms our attitudes, calming our fears, resetting our priorities. He deconstructs our false life and gives us true life and community as a community for the sake of the world. Our vision is to join Jesus in transforming our lives and those of our neighbors. And he has come among us to answer our prayers. And so we pray, make it so, Lord Jesus. Make it so. Let's pray together. We know you are here, Lord Jesus, in this place. And so we agree together that we would have you lead us, change us, transform us, and help us become your disciples among circles of friends that we might love Seattle and the world beyond it in your name. Make it so, Lord Jesus. Make it so. Amen.